This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. On the show today, we welcome Christian Kniep, who is joining us from Germany. Christian is a self-proclaimed container tinkerer, and he's currently taking some time to pursue a few exciting personal projects. Christian, I think I met you when you were a developer advocate at AWS, and I know you hail from Docker before that, and you've had a lot of really interesting life experiences that I'm excited to chat about today. So first, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Vanessa, for having me. So let's first, can you take us back as far as you'd like to go when you were in university or earlier? Tell us the story of how you got interested in computers or technology. The early days were, as I think a lot of people might approach computers or PCs in general, was gaming, I think, I'm afraid. <laughs> so no programming at the beginning. When I was a teenager, my father had a PC from a friend in, in the village where I lived, where I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Northern Germany. And yeah, he got the PC and a BTX modem to do some little online banking. That's how, how we can see it from in hindsight. I bought my own PC. I ripped it apart, built it again, like the usual tinkering with graphics cards and the CPUs and such. So that's, I think, where I got started in computer science or being interested in computers. And the, the, the early PC had like four megahertz and 30 megabyte hard drive. So that was kind of a, <laughs> a nice early start. Yeah. And through the school, I still gamed and I had some friend over to do LAN parties with this old coaxial cables we, we had before Ethernet. So that was, that was the start, I think. And then after school, I had an apprenticeship within the school in Germany when you were at seventh grade, I think, or I was at eighth grade. You have a two-week break where you get into some, some local shop or some apprenticeship. I had an apprenticeship in a little PC shack that I think got me interested in the profession very early. And that, that was the start. And then I, after school, I went to the, the army service, which due to my little PC knowledge I had, I was going into an HR department for a big training company, like 400 people, uh, 450 conscripts and professional soldiers. So we had a, a PC where we kept all the records and did like onboarded new conscripts and got rid of old ones. And this was to not get overwhelmed by all the paperwork. And I think that was the first professional use of a, of a PC, actually, when I, when I got started to use it in a proactive way. After that, I applied for more apprenticeships, got rejected first. Then I stayed at the, the army for a couple of months longer. And then I eventually got an apprenticeship at a university in an IT department to support students and other departments in the university in Northern Germany, and got introduced to Linux, got introduced to PHP and Bash, and learned the deeds of how to automate installing Linux boxes, how to install Windows and macOS, and had a a big zoo of different operating systems that I needed to work with. So I think that was a real start of doing actual IT administrative work. That was kind of fun. A lot to unwrap here. So first of all, <laughs> I was also a gamer. I had lawn parties with my brother 
And I think it's really interesting. A lot of people that I've talked to, they mention gaming and they always follow it with some qualifier like, oh, unfortunately, my first introduction to computers was gaming. But I think there's <laughs> enough studies now to show that like gaming is actually really good for us. So let's kind of flip the switch and say gaming. I was a gamer and it was great. It led me into where I am now. <laughs> you mentioned for your first apprenticeship that you saw this glimpse of a career working with computers. What did it look like at that time? So the, the German apprenticeship system is like three years of a mix of school and practical work in a, in a company, right? So two thirds of the week is in the company and then the rest is in school. And most of the colleagues that I had were working for little small shops and they were installing windows all the time and going to clients to set up their windows machine. And I was fortunate to be working on a university where they have an emphasis on educating people. And we had, a, like, as I said, a, a big zoo of Unix boxes, like Linux and macOS professionals or the, the colleagues in the university were like fanboys of Apple. So I, I got introduced to Unix, Linux. The rest of my school colleagues were not, right? So I was one of the few that were fortunate to also be introduced to that. I saw that this is a very fortunate place that I can learn a lot, that it will push me forward to not be in a, in a hamster wheel of like installing Windows over and over. And after three years, just continue installing Windows. So I got interested in, in Linux and I think that was pretty cool, actually. I'm not sure if you, if you know the Video Disc Recorder project. It's like a digital VHS yeah, recorder. And it's a, it's a Linux project that needs you to inst compile your kernel. So I did this very early on, compile kernels and have all the problems that we <laughs> face today, like there's different C compilers and, and fiddling around with that. So that was pretty nice and, and a good introduction to the whole ecosystem that we build ourselves on today. So it sounds like you hit kind of the distinction between working in computers as a service. So like, here's my laptop, install Windows for me, versus working with computers and writing code and programming. When you look back on your apprenticeships and some of these early jobs, can you tell us about the languages that you're using and which ones you picked up and kind of your journey to where you are now? I used, of course, Bash to install the Linux boxes and I created like setup.sh scripts to install everything. I think that was the, the first use of a programming language. At the same time, as we had a lot of freedom to do like projects on our own, if they were educating us, I built a lot of websites back then. And I mean, it's a podcast, so we cannot pull up the internet archive to have a look at my ugly websites in the beginning, but they were really ugly, right? It was just HTML, some weird PHP and connection to a MySQL database. So but that told me a lot of like the simple skills of creating a website, deploying it on a web server and all of that. So the, the beginning was Bash and PHP, but not in a very professional way, I'm afraid. Yeah, learning as I went on and picking up from other colleagues and maybe to, to qualify the environment a little bit more. It was not only like Unix or Linux servers, it was also the teaching environment of the students, right? So a lot of students came in and had their laptop broken. So we fixed them and like maybe the, the hard drive was broken when we switched the controller to get the data back. That was the environment. Nice. The ugly website creator. I was also at one time an ugly website creator and some of the stuff I make today is still kind of questionable. It would be really cool if you have some of those on the Wayback Machine somewhere to send the links and we can include the links or screenshots to our listeners. And 
I don't know. There's something a little bit nostalgic whenever I look back at some of these older websites. I almost wonder if the internet today like, is actually a downgrade from what it used to be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. I had a quote database. It was kind of nice. So every time you, you opened the website, there was a, like a Homer Simpson quote or some other quote I picked up. So I think it was uh, was kind of funny. And also what I did with, with PHP back then, as I said, I, in the army, we, we recreated paper trails in digital form, like in MS Word. And in the apprenticeship, you needed to create a report every week and it needs to be signed by your superior. And... Of course, I, I didn't do that, right? So at the end of the apprenticeship, like three years in, I needed to create all the reports, which were kind of dull. I installed a printer. I did that and I did that. So I created a little PHP project that were auto-generating those reports with random items from a database. So at the end, I put 70 or 100 reports on the desk of my boss to sign because I, <laughs> I didn't have the paper tray for the the final exam, which was uh, kind of a funny thing as well, because he looked at me and said, really? And I said, sure. And all the colleagues that followed were also using this for a couple of years <laughs> after I left. That is hilarious. And it's almost the same as when you write a thesis and you like chalk it onto your advisor's desk and you're, and they like give you the look and you're like, oh yeah, I, I'm totally sure this person is going to read this 200 page document. It's hilarious that you found this kind of I guess I'll call it a hack and then others continue to use it. Yeah, because everyone knew that these reports are, yeah, are weak to not use a stronger work, but yeah, it was not really something that people looked at, right? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about your experiences in the German army. I've often heard with military service that they sort of want to break you down to build you back up. Did you find that this level of discipline or something about being in the military changed you as a person or gave you experiences that were useful later in life? Yeah, certainly. I think the, the German service, it's a mandatory service, like it's only 11 months or 12 months when I started. And when I got out, they reduced it to nine months. So the first three are boot camp and special training. And then eventually you have also like, of course, uh, vacation days. And at the end from 12 months or nine months at the end, you had maybe three, four months that you really were doing actual work because you had so much training beforehand. And the German service is also light on discipline, let's say, because if you, your ankle is twisted or so, then you're off the service, right? And then you you get to the group that is ill and when you have a camping site then maybe you camp in the basement it was not super tough right but for the young german that i was it was an experience where you got out of your usual filter bubble that we would call it like the echo chamber of your friends right so you needed to get out you needed to meet more people get along with people from different backgrounds we had like people from all over Germany in the company that I worked for. And it helped me mature, I think, as a person. That's for sure, because it's an environment that you are not used to and you need to learn the, the lessons to survive there or to get along very well. And since I worked for the boss of the company, I got a good standing within the, the company because no one wanted to mess with me. So if we, my, my sergeant said, we have sports now, then I asked, do we play soccer or are we going for a run? And when he said, we are going for a run, then I said, oh, no, sorry, I have to do something for, for our boss and you are free to ask him, which nobody did, of course. And if we played soccer, I always attended the soccer play. So it was kind of a fun experience to get into an environment that you don't know and then try to figure out how to exploit 
the best out of it, right? So how to get uh, your own room without any any other roommate. So I had my own my own bed without any disturbance. I had my own sheets. Uh, so yeah, I exploited it and it was fun. And I think I, I still use this experience in the deployments that I had afterwards to find ways to get the most out of the job. I think that's true for most army services around the world, right? So you are dropped into an environment that you don't know and you need to learn how to get along very well. Have you found that you've carried forward this tendency to look for loopholes in careers after the army? <laughs> I think at the end, and I, I just popped into my, my mind, but I think the, what you could also relate this to is like being a programmer and trying to find the best way and an easy way to get around problems or create something that helps you do less work because you, you automate things away and you, you create processes that automate things away. So I think in, in this, maybe it was the first lesson of how to use the APIs of the army service to be a little bit lazy and, and uh, cut corners. So at the end, maybe it was the first lesson of programming, maybe. Oh, I really like that metaphor with programming. Nicely done. So as you're doing these early apprenticeships and jobs, you traveled a little bit. Can you tell us about your traveling experiences and what you learned from them? When I finished my apprenticeship, I had a friend in my hometown who was a farmer and he traveled to New Zealand to do some three months work and travel. And since I, I had my apprenticeship, I thought, why didn't I do this as well? Right. So I can create websites. I can like do Linux administration stuff and Windows if it need be. So I thought, let's try that as well. And the director of our IT department had a, had a brother in New Zealand. He connected us. And then I went to New Zealand to visit him, basically. And I thought, okay, I, I will just post on some job board that I'm, I'm here now. All IT jobs can apply to my service. And I went. And then it turned out that's not really how it goes, right? New Zealand has more like double the amount of cheaps than persons. So a farmer can do well, maybe an IT guy in 2005 cannot. So I, I just went there, stayed a couple of weeks at the brother of my director, and then I bought a car and drove around New Zealand. The cool thing was that that was the first time I went abroad, let alone like on the other side of the planet. And my English was not perfect, <laughs> to say the least. So when I landed, I think black, white, and yes and no was something that I could, could say, even though I had the vocabulary I had, but I, I hadn't any experience to speak freely. So that taught me my, my first English lesson in getting around in a foreign country without much, much assistance. That was breaking free from my little hometown, yeah, becoming a worldwide citizen to not only look for jobs close to my hometown and not only in German, but also, that was a good lesson. And it was three months, was fun. What advice would you give to our listeners that either want to explore their own wanderlust or want to, for example, work in tech and have a nice life balance? I think getting out and trying out new environments, that's super important at the beginning. A couple of years later, like six years later or seven years later, I went to Indonesia to teach IT at a small private university. And I think this I would recommend pretty heavily, like doing this very early, even though you don't know much maybe, or you think you don't know much about anything or about IT in, spe in specific, just go out Look for opportunities to teach people and meet people. That's always good and getting out of your comfort zone. 
nowadays with the internet providing so much assistance, so much connections to other people around the world should be even easier now. I don't even go on vacation. I just like open up Google Maps and I put it on Street View and I turn on some music and I'm like, hey, I'm traveling. <laughs> just kidding. So when you have traveled to all these different places, have you noticed differences with respect to work culture? Yeah, certainly. I worked for automotive companies in the early career stages and they were pretty strict and pretty limited, right? So DevOps methodology was not really developed and uh, lean development was also not something that they did. And milestones are really important and doing what we called uh, IT Mikado. Do you know this this game where you have sticks and you, you should not touch them? Like if one stick moves, then you're lost. Maybe. Let me look it up really, really quickly. I've definitely played this before when I was younger. I didn't know it was called Mikado, but I, yeah, I, I'm familiar. Yeah. So this Mikado game and this Mikado analogy was that with a lot of external contractors in like Audi or Daimler, the first people or the first person who said there is a problem owns the problem. And so you, everyone was just sitting still, trying not to draw attention. And the first one who moves was the one who got the blame. So this environment of very rigid rules and procedures and politics was something that due to my army service time, I think I, I knew a little bit and I, I was getting along with, but uh, that was of course one extreme example of a work environment. And since I worked at Daimler, I wanted to go to something that is less strict. So that's when I went to Indonesia to do some training because I said, I'm sick of all this milestone project bullshit. So let me go somewhere else. And of course, in, in Indonesia, it was like totally different. They didn't have much resources. So the curriculum was sourced from an Indian nonprofit and projects were supervised by an English university. So they, they had a lot of external sources where they draw their curriculum from or the, the program. And in this environment, it was like completely different from what I, what I knew and prepared a lot of slides that were not useful to the students. So getting to know how the students learned and what they needed to know for the exam at the end of the, of the three months was super different from what I, what I knew in, before. There was kind of the other extreme of environment. And of course, I mean, I, I worked in, in, in France and Paris for a couple of years. I worked for companies in California, like in Los Angeles and also in San Francisco. So I, I had a lot of different environments that I worked for. The understanding of different cultures and emphasizing or sympathizing with others, understanding what where they're coming from. I think that's also something that cannot be overrated. And I think that's also experience that, that people should seek, like getting out, as I said, out of the comfort zone, not only by country, also by different people and trying to relate to them and trying to walk in their shoes for a while. That's really good advice. Okay, so to summarize, you came back from New Zealand, you were working at car companies for a while and you noped out of there. <laughs> And then you went to Indonesia to work as a teacher and you had a few scattered jobs. How did you stumble your way into AWS, Amazon Web Services? As I said, I, I worked for Audi for two years. Then I studied and worked for Daimler. Like I had a 50% job near Stuttgart and studied for the rest of the time. And that was where I got really into HPC. I had a 4,000 uh, crash test cluster, 4,000 node crash test cluster that I maintained where I was in charge of InfiniBand at the end of the day. This is where I really fall, fell into the big HPC soup. So I attended my first ISC, I think in 2012 or so. 
that was the beginning. And when the company I worked for got bought by Bull, now Atos, I moved to Paris to work for Bull's Exascale Interconnect, which was kind of a InfiniBand competitor. They thought it, it is an InfiniBand competitor. I think they sold it two times. I went there and worked in an R&D department, it's not installing systems and being responsible for production environments for customers, but more an internal job developing monitoring software for this whole Exascale Interconnect, which had at the end 64K nodes. So the monitoring system needed to deal with a lot of data. And I got to know like Grafana and InfluxDB and all this, this nice tool set. After I was introduced to Docker in 2014, like by myself, I thought, okay, maybe HPC is not, it's too rigid. It's not um, really adopting containers as I would like them to. So I thought I, I need to quit. And when the Paris group I worked for wanted to create something else than DNS, because they needed something that translates IP addresses to host names, I proposed DNS and they said, no, that's not good enough. We do ourselves. We do something that we create ourselves. I thought, okay, maybe that's that's now the point uh, where I cannot stand this anymore, and I I quit and moved back to Germany. And when I moved, since I knew Docker quite well back then in the early days, I found a job at a startup in Berlin. So I started my journey from HPC to the startup world quickly after PlayStation Now approached me to join their ranks to do the PlayStation Now cloud stack with containers and with Gen2 and with like a quite sophisticated stack was kind of kind of interesting. And two years after that, that's kind of my cadence, by the way, like two years is where I moved from one company to, to another in hindsight. I joined Docker and two years after that, Docker was bought by Mirantis and laid off the European staff basically. So I looked for a new job and then I joined AWS as a as EC2 spot specialist. So that is like the, the fast rundown of my positions over the last 10 years, I think. That is quite an adventure. And we don't talk about this a lot, but I do think it's lucrative in tech to move every two to three years, because generally when you move and you get a new job, that's a much larger bump than if you just were to get like a small incremental bonus or something like that. So kudos to that, although it probably meant a lot of moving and disruption. I think having a new job is on the list of like the stressful things that can happen to you in your life. So I hope that wasn't too bad. <laughs> No, no, it was it was fine. I mean, I moved out of my hometown like 15 years ago now. But since then, I moved, as I just said, I, I moved a lot. So that's, of course, as you said, it's stressful. New environments and building or keeping the friendships that you have is, of course, also pretty rough then if you move to another country. But uh, yeah, at the end, it was totally worth it. I think the perception in Germany and I think a lot of places is that if you move a lot or if you switch jobs a lot, then you are a flip-flopper and uh, you cannot commit because you, you need to quit every time. And I think that's not really true, right? If you have a vision of yourself or if you want to explore different things, then totally do that. Right? I mean, at the end, your CV might have a lot of action items, a lot of bullet points, but if you, if you can tell a narrative, tell a story around that, I think that's totally okay. My story is that I wanted to explore different things, that I wanted to work with different environments and that I wanted to push containers forward in different environments. I think that's totally defendable. And when I when I worked for the non-HPC companies, I still attended SC or ISC and I have a container workshop for the last eight years at ISC. That's a continuum, I think, that I can just put out and, and it's not a problem to switch jobs. 
I totally agree. It's an okay thing to do and it's part of your story. So let's talk about this HPC soup that you described. It sounds like there was something about it that was sticky because as soon as you sort of got exposed to it, you kept going back to it. And I think by the time you joined AWS and you're working with Docker, you considered yourself an HPC guy. Can you talk about your, any potential changes in identity that you had during this time and sort of how you saw yourself in your role? Yeah, early on when I started working at real HPC systems, like I said in Daimler, for instance, we are all small kids. <laughs> we, we want to play with tools, right? We want to play with big iron. We want to see that uh, if you click a button, then something happens. And when I started the HPC environments, I, as I said, had this 4,000 node cluster that I was maintaining. And over the Christmas break one year, I, I needed to update all the nodes. So I needed to, to stop all the nodes or install new kernels, new server, uh, new, new images, and then stop all the nodes, start all the nodes, start all the switches. And that was kind of a, a revelation. Like it gave me a, a very warm feeling because of course, like, you know, that in the data center, 100 kilometers away or 50 kilometers away, your click will turn down like 1,000 nodes at a time, and then it will bring up 100 nodes, another 100 nodes. And I think that kind of excited me and got me to love HPC and data centers in general. Data centers in non-HPC environments, even though they are, of course, also exciting, but in HPC, you, you have the big iron, right? You have the biggest boxes. They are all the same. They have one big job to do, and uh, you don't have a lot of diverse use cases. So that, that, I think, got me really excited about HPC very early on because I had this exposure and I was able to yeah, administrate and maintain and create software, software on top of this stack. Yeah, so that was when I fell into in love with, with HPC. But when you work in HPC for a couple of years, then you see the limitations, right? And I mean, it's better now, but back then, HPC environments tend to be very strict. I'd say very snowflakey in a sense that everyone thinks that they have the one solution to run workloads. So everyone is a little bit different and creating something that spans across multiple HPC centers or HPC environments, it's pretty hard and getting consensus is hard as we all know, I think by now. Then you also not only have the academia sites, big national labs, but also the industry, which is even stricter and even more snowflakey because they yeah, have their own way of doing things and they look at big HPC sites as competition, I think, as, as not productive enough or too expensive to be used. I think I saw the limitations at some point. And as I said, when the HPC company I worked for trying to reinvent DNS because it was not invented here, I, I thought, okay, I need a break. And the cloud infrastructure and containers really got some traction. So I thought I need to drop out of HPC for a while, do some other tech stacks to broaden my view. The first job I did in Berlin, I was introduced to AWS and then yeah, slowly broadened my tool belt but also at the same time, always thinking about how HPC can be evolved by the other tech stacks that I learned. I consider myself a hybrid, like I'm HPC, but also like the new stacks, like containers and, and make everything a little bit leaner and broadening the application of HPC for everyone. Right? So if you have a small problem, then you should also use the HPC stack. I like that description as a hybrid. So at AWS, you were a developer advocate and you created a team of developer advocates specifically for HPC. 
since you were very much bridging a lot of these communities you just talked about, so industry, academia, national labs, can you tell us what that was like and some of the practical and cultural differences between them or maybe things we had in common too? Yeah, I started at AWS in July 2019, and I started not in, as an HPC expert, but as EC2 spot specialist. Like EC2 is the spare capacity is rented out with a steep discount. That's where I started because I kind of failed the application for HPC because I was not able to compile, I think, and talk about compilation of, of code. So that was not what they were seeking. That is so lame. Sorry, yeah. to continue. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that is, it was kind of a bummer at first, but at the end it was very nice and a very fortunate turn of events because EC2 Spot was very new. It had a worldwide SA community and specialist community around that, which was only a dozen people when I started or so, or maybe two dozen, but not much. And a couple of months in, Brendan Bufler from, from AWS, from the product team in, in HPC, he wanted to form this developer relations team and we, we chatted a long time or when I, when I first started, I, I met him somewhere and, and I said that I want to bring containers to HPC and was very passionate about the vision of containers and HPC. So that's when he noted me, I think. And when he wanted to start this developer relations team, like he took me out of the specialist SA role that I was in and we formed the developer relations team to provide more voices to open source communities and communities that maybe have no voice in the sales cycle, like spec or easy build or reframe, open MPI and all of that. They were, of course, not on the radar of the sales cycle because they had no money, right? They were just enabling customers to use HPC resources, but they were not really on the bucket list for them to, to sell to them because they had no money to buy. So the developers relations team tried to give them a voice by helping them out with credits, helping them out with knowledge and some connections within the product team. And yeah, that was kind of the basis of the, the developer relations team at AWS for HPC. We engaged with those communities. We wrote blog posts about feature releases and we, we tried to push the, the HPC use in the cloud forward by, by doing so. So I have a very stupid question. What does HPC in the cloud mean? <laughs> I mean, ideally what you would see in, in other HPC environments on-prem, right? Like weather forecasts being run in the cloud and all the HPC codes are also ran in the cloud or run in the cloud, right? But, but of course the scale of usual HPC that we talk about at national labs with a couple of thousand nodes that's not what you would see in cloud environments because having hundreds or thousands of nodes connected via a high-speed interconnect is harder than just connecting 50 nodes on, on two switches in the cloud. And the cloud does not expose a lot of the internal connection layout that all the hosts have. So the more nodes you have, the more you want to know the MPI wants to know about the layout of the network. So that's not where the strong suit is. That said, small or smaller jobs with only a couple of dozen or maybe a couple of hundred nodes, that's totally something that you could do in any other cloud as well. But the HPC environment or the most use, I think, is maybe done with, with GPUs and AIML training because a lot of the GPU-enabled nodes can be used with batch services and that is of course also where the money is, right? A lot of the big 
companies who do AIML, they pour a lot of money into AWS for or all the clouds, I think, for those kind of jobs. So maybe not big distributed jobs. Maybe that's not where the HPC in the cloud is most used, but more like a lot of embarrassing parallel, one node, couple of node jobs. That's where the strong suit of HPC in the cloud is. Gotcha. So it's not really emulating an actual HPC cluster in terms of the networking, but rather enabling users that have HPC-like workloads to run their stuff in the cloud in a way that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And maybe also folks that do not need a cluster for like a couple of weeks, right? Even a couple of years. So if they only need uh, 20 nodes to do a job every week for a couple of hours, then it's of course hard to justify buying a couple of nodes and putting them in the basement because you only need them only a couple of hours per, per week. And that's where it's easy to just use parallel cluster or the other tools that are out there to create a slurm cluster in the cloud in a couple of minutes and then run your stuff and then destroy it and off you go. And you, you always get the latest and greatest hardware, if you like, right? If a new GPU comes out, a new CPU comes out, you, you just try it out in the cloud and, and see what it brings you. Exactly. And I'm not a HPC user in terms of someone that has like these highly scaled, I don't know, physics simulations, but I'm an HPC developer user. And I actually have my own personal cloud accounts because, you know, on the weekend, I really like the fact that I'm empowered to like spin up an instance, which when all is said and done, you know, it's, it's really not that expensive, which brings me to my next question, which is about costs. I feel like there is a lot of fear when you bring up the idea of cloud to someone who is traditionally sort of academic or HPC, that's like the first point that they bring up. They're like, oh no, we couldn't possibly do that. So what advice would you give to people that maybe want to use cloud or are interested, but are just really scared of, you know, leaving something on and coming back and having a $40,000 bill? To just put in perspective what you just said, I think the, the fear is of course that maybe not so much the user, but the sysadmin or the manager of a group if you have an on-prem environment, you have your 20 nodes and you cannot exceed the computational power of the 20 nodes, which is kind of sad at some point, but for the manager makes him maybe sleep better because he knows that he cannot accumulate more costs than the hardware that he has, right? If you switch to the cloud, of course, then if your limits are very high and for HPC customers, they most likely are higher because they want to create maybe 100 node cluster and then destroy it day later and they don't use it for a couple of days or weeks. That is not that easy to comprehend, right? Because you, you know that you can start 100 nodes and if you let them run for two weeks, then you have a, a big surprise bill at the end of the month. So I think this is kind of the the problem that people think they have when they use the cloud. You, you start a lot of nodes, you do not control maybe the users and you cannot constrain them because they are used to be unconstrained on an on-prem environment. So you need to somehow put them into, put brakes on them so that they cannot overreach what they are supposed to do. And that's of course, you need to put in place policies and make sure that you had, have alerts, maybe you have a, a Slack bot that tells you when something is, is pending or it's, it's, it's not utilized, it's idling in the cloud, then you need to be aware of that and make sure that the resources are removed at the end. You can do this with a lot of automation, but of course, with a lot of automation comes a lot of potential problems and potential bugs, which might, may be very costly. So educating yourself before you approach that and making sure that you put best practices in place to prevent running costs. I think that's the advice that people should put in place. 
you are not used to the cloud, then of course that's scary and you need to educate yourself and make sure that you put best practices in place. Advice that I can give. And it's it's not super hard, right? If you use services that are tailored to this and you don't do your own EC2 calls and try to create everything yourself, then I think there are a lot of things you can put in place to not overrun costs. Yeah, can you imagine? Surprise! You think you're going to retire? No, not anymore. Not with this new cost. That would be absolutely terrible. So you said you had vision, vision for containers and HPC. Can you tell us about that vision? As I said, I I started HPC very early on, and then I kept this idea of HPC and making it simpler for my career, like the entire career. And I banked my head against a lot of the problems that we face, like with runtimes, with images, with specializations for different uh, interconnects and so on. So I think I, I have a good amount of scars and most maybe most scars that you can collect in usual HPC environments. The idea is, of course, to make HPC accessible for a lot of people and take out the complexity that we face, right? So you need to pick the right binary, for instance. You need to specialize it for the environment you're running on with the interconnect and the MPI and so on. And I think that's the, the grand vision is to simplify this. So that is a, the basic idea. Bring containers in HPC to everyone that wants to run a small CFD simulation of the 3D print that they want to do the next day. That would be ideal, right? If we can introduce it to a lot of non-HPC users and make them use actual HPC and on maybe small scale, but yeah, brown this up. So that's the idea. I try to attack this in all the different levels and all the different layers. So I tried to, I tweaked Mobi, so the Docker the Docker runtime a couple of years ago to make better use of better binaries, which was one approach to do it. I tweaked schedulers and tried to set up Slurm or Kubernetes to pick the right image. But the attempts were not really getting much traction, right? Because every time you, you tweak a, a different layer, you figure out that there are others, competitors in that layer that you need to tweak as well. So at the end, I, I thought I, I need to solve it at the very higher level, like the highest level, which is the distribution phase. And then that's where I think at the end of the day, we should explore what we can do, the distribution piece smart and help people out. In 2019, before I joined AWS, I created a registry service, which I called MetaHub, to just flush it out before I joined AWS. And that's what I tried to pursue the last couple of months. Yeah, having a, a registry that knows the context of the user, knows the context of the environment, like the CPU architecture, and can serve images that are specialized for the environment the user is, is in. We have just hit a why did you build it moment, and the topic is MetaHub. So Christian, just to tell you, we have this new thing on the podcast, and there's three questions that I'm interested to know. One, what did you build? I think you answered that MetaHub. Two, why did you build it? And three, who was it for? So it's an OCI compliant registry where you, with your login, you can not only identify yourself, but you could identify the environment you're in. So say... The environment is a sky lake or an ice lake instance. You can announce to the registry that you are you need an ice lake binary or Zen 3 or Zen 2 binary. And then MetaHub will serve you exactly that binary for the job. So you don't need to specify special tags. You, you just ask for Gromex and it will serve you the right image with only the binaries and libraries that you need for your environment. 
that's the basic idea, the basic concept, having an OCI compliant registry. I built it to first help me. I mean, everyone tries to solve problems for themselves first and then see how, how they can be applied to others. Because I had this problem of different environments, different instance types in AWS, and I wanted to, to solve that by making the registry smart for everyone who wants to run an HPC job without the hassle of picking the right binary and picking the right libraries to, to run it. I think the, one of the first use cases for me is the biocontainer uh, community, like the bioinformaticians, which use a lot of containers that are built from Conda, like the Bioconda project, this Python building project. And they all suffer a little bit because they, they only have x86 binaries for a biocontainer. And with my MetaHub service, I, I want to build the same biocontainer repository, like all the containers that they have. But augment them also with ARM images so that they can use their new shiny MacBook with an M1 or M2 and use the native performance of this machine and not just emulating x86 and running the x86 container from bio containers. So I think this community is in dire need of a good solution that helps them reduce the complexity and makes it possible for the sysadmins of biolabs to just define what the image is for different environments. And that's what, what MetaHub tries to solve, where you can put in manifests that describe what image you need, and then you can pick it with the login user login. That is pretty cool. So would you describe this as a startup, a personal project, like to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, how have you developed this kind of new entrepreneurial experience? Yeah, it started as a pet project, as I said before I joined AWS, but since I could not push my container and HPC vision in my position, I thought I, I just quit and make MetaHub my profession. And I mean, I'm, I'm a one-person startup, if you will, but it's not a well-funded million-dollar enterprise yet. But I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? To make this a service that people can use, use the channels that I have to make people aware and then see what the feedback is from the different user groups that want to try it out. That sounds like a plan. So we are coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. Can you tell us about houseboats? <laughs> I like, I mean, I, I live in, in Berlin or in Potsdam, but it's a very, it's, it's a place where you have a lot of rivers and lakes and so on. So I like to go out with boats since house prices are pretty high everywhere, I suppose. And I don't want to put myself in a specific place without the option to move. I think houseboats are the housing of the future. My goal is to, to get a houseboat, which is a bigger version of a small vacation houseboat, and then just use this as a base to go to places and not being stuck at one place. So that's kind of my houseboat story. And then you will float away and never come back. <laughs> So let, final question, when you look at all of the places you visited, do you have a specific experience or a food that is your absolute favorite? I like Asian food. I liked Asian food before I uh, went to Indonesia, but yeah, Asian food, I think it's, it's my, my favorite. I like to cook, but I'm not a particular good cook. And if you use a wok or like you use this recipes, you just need to throw it in in a certain order that it's it's well cooked at the end. So what needs the longest gets in first and then you progress through your ingredients. And I think that's my style of cooking. So uh, yeah, Asian food, I think is a favorite. Yum. 
Christian, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. You offer a perspective about how to strategically move between roles to explore and learn. And although not everything can be planned, you offer this insight about squeezing the most out of every experience that you encounter. I've really enjoyed having you as a part of our larger container community. And I'm wishing you the best of success with MetaHub. So thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.